At a Radical Guide, we are into games of resistance. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be featuring games that have a radical focus to them. And then we're going to connect that radical focus to real history, places, and people. In this episode, we are revisiting the game Antifa. But this is not going to be your typical gaming video. This will be Antifa the Game meets Anti-Fascist the Handbook. During the gameplay, we will highlight elements of the game and connect it to the real-world meaning. And we'll also be listening to the section of the book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook by Mark Bray. Thank you for joining us. And if you have uh, suggestions for future games, please let us know. Before jumping into the game, let's talk about the game. Antifa was created by Wobbly Dev. The game itself is a run and jump action game where you play the lovable hero of the game, Antifa. As Antifa, you are working to overthrow the regime of Dumpland. In level 1, you find yourself in a prison outside of the cages. And the goal? Well, escape the prison. start the game, I want to draw your attention to the dark screen music. You may have already recognized it. It's an 8-bit version of the song Bella Ciao. I think this is a wonderful addition to kick off the game. For those who are not familiar with Bella Ciao, this song has deep roots in resistance. It started as a song of resistance to economic exploitation. It was sung to protest against working conditions in paddy fields in northern Italy. In the 19th century. During the Second World War, it was modified and adapted by anti-fascist partisans into the version that we, are, we know today. It has now become the anthem for anti-fascist and resistance movements everywhere. Some Antifa groups are more Marxist, while others are more anarchist or anti-authoritarian. In the United States, most have been anarchist or anti-authoritarian since the emergence of modern Antifa under the name Anti-Racist Action, ARA, in the late 80s. To some extent, the predominance of one faction over the other can be discerned in the group's flag logo, whether the red flag is in front of the black or vice versa, or whether both flags are black. In other cases, one of the two flags can be substituted with the flag of a national liberation movement, or a black flag can be paired with a purple flag to represent feminist Antifa, or a pink flag for queer Antifa, etc. Despite such differences, the Antifa I interviewed agreed that such ideological differences are usually subsumed in a more general strategic agreement on how to combat the common enemy. A range of tendencies exist within that broader strategic consensus, however. Some Antifa focus on destroying fascist organizing. Others focus on building popular community power and inoculating society to fascism through promoting their leftist political vision. Many formations fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. In Germany in the 1990s, a debate emerged in the autonomous anti-fascist movement over whether Antifa was mainly a form of self-defense necessitated by attacks from the far right 
or holistic politics, often called revolutionary anti-fascism, that could form the foundation of the broader revolutionary struggle. Depending on local contexts and politics, Antifa can variously be described as a kind of ideology, an identity, a tendency or milieu, or an activity of self-defense. Despite the various shades of interpretation, Antifa should not be understood as a single-issue movement. Instead, it is simply one of a number of manifestations of revolutionary socialist politics, broadly construed. Most of the anti-fascists I interviewed also spend a great deal of their time on other forms of politics, e.g. labor organizing, squatting, environmental activism, anti-war mobilization, or migrant solidarity work. In fact, the vast majority would rather devote their time to these productive activities than have to risk their safety and well-being to confront dangerous neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Antifa act out of collective self-defense. The success or failure of militant anti-fascism often depends on whether it can mobilize broader society to confront fascists, as occurred so famously with London's 1936 Battle of Cable Street, or tap into wider societal opposition to fascism to ostracize emerging groups and leaders. At the core of this complex process of opinion-making is the construction of societal taboos against racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of oppression that constitute the bedrocks of fascism. These taboos are maintained through a dynamic that I call Everyday Anti-Fascism, Chapter 6. Finally, it is important not to lose sight of the fact that anti-fascism has always been just one facet of a larger struggle against white supremacy and authoritarianism. In his legendary 1950 essay, Discourse on Colonialism, the Martiniquan writer and theorist, Ami César, argued convincingly that Hitlerism was abhorrent to Europeans because of its humiliation of the white man and the fact that Hitler applied to Europe colonialist procedures which until then had been reserved exclusively for the Arabs of Algeria, the coolies of India, and the niggers of Africa. Without in any way diminishing the horror of the Holocaust, to a certain extent we can understand Nazism as European colonialism and imperialism brought home. The decimation of the indigenous populations of the Americas and Australia, the tens of millions who died of famine in India under British rule, the ten million killed by Belgian King Leopold's Congo Free State, and the horrors of transatlantic slavery are but a sliver of the mass death and societal decimation wrought by European powers prior to the rise of Hitler. Early concentration camps, known as reservations, were set up by the American government to imprison indigenous populations, by the Spanish monarchy to contain Cuban revolutionaries in the 1890s, and by the British during the Boer War at the turn of the century. Well before the Holocaust, the German government had committed genocide against the Herero and Nama people of southwest Africa through the use of concentration camps and other methods between 1904 and 1907. For this reason, it is vital to understand anti-fascism as a solitary component of a larger legacy of resistance to white supremacy in all its forms. My focus on militant anti-fascism is in no way intended to minimize the importance of other forms of anti-racist organizing that identify with anti-imperialism, black nationalism, or other traditions. Rather than imposing an anti-fascist framework on groups and movements that conceive of themselves differently, even if they are battling the same enemies using similar methods, I focus largely on groups that self-consciously situate themselves within the anti-fascist tradition.